0: everybody welcome back for another episode of to be determined with bill and dan hello hello today we are talking about a classic story from the 40s from 1944 specifically that was originally published in astounding magazine by clifford d simac called desertion what's it about dan
1: Uh, Well, essentially, it's about a person and his dog turning themselves into an alien organism to go explore Jupiter.
0: It's an interesting story because early as it is, like I said, 1944, already we had the notion of terraforming or changing another planet, changing the atmosphere to be suitable for humans. And what this does... Because
1: we like changing things to suit ourselves.
0: That's right, because we are, after all, the most important thing in the universe. So what this story does, though, is it flips that around, and instead it talks about changing the human form to be compatible with the harsh environment of the planet Jupiter. Desertion is actually one of the first stories to be built around this kind of human transformation. The process is later named Pantropy by James Blish in his 1957 short story that's called The Seedling Stars. Dan, why don't you introduce the characters for us?
1: So yeah, some of the characters we have in the in the story, there's, there again, as always, not many. First one is uh, a researcher by the name of Kent Fowler. He's kind of the head of the entire research project. There's a little bit of uh, dialogue with another character called Harold Allen. He's one of the volunteers, number five of all the people who have been transformed into this alien life form and, and sent out the door. There's another very interesting character by the name of Miss Stanley who runs what's called the Converter, the machine that actually you know takes the human and turns them into—they're they're called lopers, just to jump ahead a little bit, the alien life form that they're transforming the humans into— And then Towser, who happens to be Kent Fowler's dog.
0: So the basic process that they engage in, and it it makes reference to them having done this on multiple planets before, and in fact that Miss Stanley has worked on all of the planets that they do this pantropy process of transformation. But what they do is they bring in a team of biologists, and they study local life forms. They look for the highest life form on the planet and then they, they construct a set of parameters that will transform a human being through a device, a transformer of some sort, into that life form so that they can be compatible with the atmosphere and the surroundings and all of that that they have to go out into to explore. And again, it makes reference to them having done this multiple times. They're trying to do it on Jupiter. But it's not working. But Jupiter has given them lots of problems. Exactly. It's, it's just it's not working at all. The atmosphere is too caustic. There's too much pressure because the planet's so big, and whatever they're doing hasn't been working. Four people that they've transformed and sent out so far have just never come back. They didn't report in. They don't know why. They don't know if their if their transformation failed or something ate them or or what.
1: Right. So you know, along comes a volunteer number five, Harold, uh, the the head of the research department Kent is, has a little conversation with him, basically says, yep, we've sent four of you guys out. No one's come back. We're, you know do you still want to go? You know, don't be a hero, just basically go out there, find what happens, please come back. And then you know he volunteers, of course, you know, with a big smile on his face. He goes down to the converter. You know, Ms. Stanley, who is the, as I said, the converter operator, she's been very, she's been getting a little un- unhappy about this entire process and essentially is more or less accusing Fowler of, of sending all these people out to die for, you know, his own glory as a researcher or, or something like that. And Miss Fowler, it's interesting, she's like, given that this is 1944, the fact that, you know, number one, she's something other than a housewife, or some like very junior research assistant is it's pretty rare in these stories to see a woman in a position where she's got responsibility and, and actually can talk back and, and give the researchers some, give them some shit about what they're doing.
0: Yeah. And she's clearly being judgmental about everything and, and is questioning Well, it says at one point, you know, you're good at this stuff. You're going to be a great man. You're going to be remembered. However, How many people have to die for your self-aggrandizement? Is it really worth it? And for whatever reasons, they have set Jupiter as the stakes. You know, we don't know what other planets they've explored, uh, but there's a passing reference that gets made to the resources that they stand to gain from this.
1: Yeah, Jupiter's the big prize.
0: That's right. So there's a, there's a passage that's talking about that that says, Upon these tests, Fowler knew depended the fate of men on Jupiter. If the test succeeded, the resources of the giant planet would be thrown open. Man would take over Jupiter as he had already taken over other smaller planets. And if they failed, well, if they failed, man would come continue to be chained and hampered by the terrific pressure, the greater force of gravity, the weird chemistry of the planet. He would continue to be shut within the domes, unable to act to set actual foot upon the planet, unable to see it with direct, unaided vision, forced to rely upon the awkward tractors and the televisor, forced to work with clumsy tools and mechanisms through which or through the medium of robots that themselves were clumsy. So they've set themselves this lofty goal with a lot of sense that, hey, this should be within our grasp because we've done it multiple times before. And they have just they have failed over and over and over again.
1: And and Fowler's response to uh, Miss Stanley when she's accusing him of basically throwing away human lives, he's got a completely different take in the the sort of noble spirit. You know, his quote is, "If a few men die, but we finally succeed, the price is small." Through the ages, men have thrown away their lives on foolish things for foolish reasons. Why should we hesitate then at a little death in the thing as great as
0: this? And yet, at the same time. Her questioning his ethics, her questioning his commitments, well, or the cost of his commitments, not not that he's not committed to the task, but whether or not he should be as committed as he is.
1: It does cause him to reconsider what he's doing.
0: That's right. And he, so then after the fifth guy doesn't come back, he's he's got three portfolios in front of him for three new candidates. Each one has qualifications that make him ready to go, and each one has a has something some detail a child or or people waiting for him or one guy's about to retire for example and he says yeah I, you know all these people like he 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 finds himself finally unable to make a decision about who to put forward next
1: so he picks up the phone or the speaker and he gets miss Stanley on the line and says all right we're gonna do two more and she of course is like oh geez uh, completely, you know, thinking, oh, now we're going to send two more people out to die. And uh, the first thing we, we hear is that um, Fowler tells Miss Stanley, one of them's a dog. And she's like, what? And this brings in Towser, the dog, that I mentioned in the character uh, reference earlier. And she's like, I can't believe you'd do this to your dog. And he's like, well, the dog would be unhappy if I didn't go with him. So... Then we find out that Kent Fowler himself is going to be the sixth volunteer, and his dog, or his dog, Towser, is the seventh. Oh, and by the way, Towser is probably based on uh, Clifford D. Psymax's dog, Bowser, who apparently shows up in numerous of his stories.
0: He seems like he's some sort of a bloodhound or something along those lines. For some reason, that's what I was picturing. There's no, like, real detail, but he's a big old dog. And he's old. And he's old. Yep.
1: So, so they go down. I guess Miss Stanley's fine with this arrangement. She doesn't really, you know, she's like, "Oh, well, if you're willing to put your life on the line, I guess it's okay." So they they go down. Miss Stanley does the converter, sends out. Uh, I think Fowler goes first, and yep. then Towser goes second. And what do they find, Bill, when they get outside the dome into Jupiter?
0: It's it's an interesting passage that begins it because right away the we make the transition. There, there's no explanation of it. We just start with, it was not the Jupiter he had known through the televisor. He'd expected it to be different, but not like this. He'd expected a hell of ammonia rain and stinking fumes and the deafening thundering tumult of the storm. He'd expected swirling clouds and fog and the snarling flicker of monstrous thunderbolts. He had not expected... The lashing downpour would be reduced to drifting purple mist that moved like fleeting shadows over a red and purple sward. He had not even guessed the snaking bolts what, of lightning. What's a sward? I couldn't figure that word out. Oh, that's like a, a section of grass. Like the like the a sward would be the median on a highway, for example.
1: Ah, oh, I see. I, I never realized that. So basically, Jupiter's awesome,
0: right? And from the perspective of a of a life form native to Jupiter, which he's now in the form of one of these lopers. Which we assume has sort of sort of a wolf-like form.
1: Something that can survive the Jovian environment.
0: But yeah, so they find he finds that from that perspective, Jupiter is this amazing, beautiful, almost overwhelming sensation of sense and other tactile sensation And
1: what better to do than share this experience with what your dog as Towser comes out of the conversion machine right behind Fowler.
0: I love it too because as Towser he senses that there's like this energy coming from behind him and he hears this sort of mental projection of his dog saying, hiya pal. <laughs> I love that.
1: <laughs> Which is interesting because this is the first indicator we get, um, not to jump ahead into the philosophy piece, but now it's like, hey, when it comes to a Jovian life form, the the dog is basically equivalent to or you know better equipped to handle this whole thing than the human.
0: Yeah, so the it makes the transformation makes the dog more intelligent, makes the human more intelligent as well.
1: Or or maybe the dog's been intelligent all along but just was unable to communicate.
0: Right. Well, and in fact the dog says that he's tried to communicate, but that
1: humans are just too dumb.
0: Right. You never really understood, but the dog blames himself, you know, in, in true, like sort of military fashion. It, it's not, it's not really a military outfit, but it it has a very military feel to it. And Towser says in response "Say, yep, I just couldn't make the grade.
1: Yeah. Not sure if uh, Clifford Simak was in the military or not, but it, it's not surprising. I mean, this is, you know, what, 1944, it's all, you know, World War one and two, well, World War two era. So probably influenced a lot of stuff. You never right. know.
0: Well, and Alan, the fifth guy to go out and, and go, you'll get, go through the transformation and leave the, the dome, was an ex-Marine. We know that from the description of him. Well, so basically, Towser, as a dog, he says, hey, I feel like a puppy. This is awesome. Let's race to that cliff way over there. And there's a cliff way over there. So they start running and running and running. And, and like they're, they're, they're getting into their forms. Towser's absolutely loving it. Fowler's more reluctant at first.
1: Well, yeah, he's reluctant, but as he he learns more of these you know unknown senses and unknown abilities that he just couldn't comprehend as a human, he gets more and more of the opinion that maybe it's a lot better being a, a loper than it is to be a human.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, again, a wonderful passage tied to that. Towser, he cried. Towser, something's happening to us. Yeah, I know, says Towser. It's our brains, said Fowler. We're using them, all of them, down to the last hidden corner, using them to figure out things we should have known all the time. Maybe the brains of Earth things are naturally slow and foggy. Maybe we are the morons of the universe. Maybe we are fixed, so we have to do things the hard way.
1: Yeah, I, I tagged that quote as well, because it is it is so relevant to this story.
0: And it's a, it's a wonderful turning point, too, because it's where Fowler seems to... Truly and fully embrace the form, not only that he's in, but he has a full appreciation of Towser. One being in this situation where he's healthy, he's young, he's vibrant, he's capable. He can talk; they can exchange in ways that they've never been capable of exchanging before, and so there's a, there's all of this like exuberance and joy that comes from it. But then there's also the sense that he's become something so much more than he was.
1: And, and he doesn't completely forget about his former existence, keep in mind. He actually, for a minute, says, hey, you know, we got to go back. It's our job to go explain what's going on because, you know again, he knows the deal. He's been the head. He knows he sent these people out. But now he knows why no one's come back because it's just too nice out here. And he contemplates just for a little bit going back. But then he says, hold on a second, this means, and I think he quotes, back to the fuzzy brain, back to muddled thinking, back to the flapping mouths that formed signals others understood, back to eyes that would now be worse than no sight at all, back to squalor, back to crawling, back to ignorance. And he says,
0: yeah. And
1: he's like, I don't think I want to do that.
0: I guess I could maybe go back sometime. But then Towser immediately says, I can't go back. They'll turn me back into a dog. I don't want that.
1: And Fowler says, "Yeah," and they turn me back into a man.
0: And that's the end of the story right there. And it's it's a really interesting and neat story. A- again, one of these that I had never read. And it's it one of my favorites.
1: It really points out some interesting things about, you know, again, like in the last few stories in the in the double feature where where they kind of poked fun at, you know, Humankind's sort of overinflated sense of itself in the universe. This this does something very similar in that it's like, hey, you know, if humans ever do manage to transform themselves into something else, maybe it, it would be better. Maybe we don't have the the senses or the intelligence, and other creatures do.
0: Well, one interesting difference though between desertion from simac and, well, like you're just referring to either um, to serve man from Damon Knight or they're made out of meat by Terry Bisson is that the humans in those other two stories are completely unaware of their failings necessarily, or of their, of, of how they don't stack up to alien life. Now, in the case of to serve man, the aliens come down and share wondrous gifts, but it isn't until the very end that they figure out, Oh, they're, they're basically fattening us up like Christmas turkeys. So they could take us home to their planet and eat us They're They're building a farm. But there's never really a, a conscious recognition that the aliens are better than or more than the humans. It's just sort of the way that they're set up. The relationship defines that. Whereas in this case, Fowler makes the realization that, wow, maybe humans aren't as, aren't like the, the peak as we've always expected or as we've always seen ourselves to be. We've accomplished all of these things, and yet at the same time, here's a planet where... Uh, a life form that we've taken for granted has some qualities and characteristics about it that seem absolutely superior to our basic human form.
1: And you might want to be tempted to think about this as as you know if you're familiar with like posthumanism or or transhumanism philosophy stuff, you might kind of think, hey, maybe this is kind of an early story about that, but you know most of that's most of the the posthumanism transhuman things are are us doing something to ourselves deliberately to augment ourselves or you know whatever humans are going to evolve into eventually naturally or or with technological adaptation but in this case it's almost like accidental transhumanism or accidental posthumanism, because we're not trying to do it it just kind of happens
0: one of the things that we don't know from the story is what would happen if he did get transformed back what would he remember There's an implication that being as he gained awareness by the transformation into the form of the Loper, that he would lose awareness, but there's also that transition period where he remembers the humanity. So would he remember the Loper and would he be capable of of remembering, oh my gosh, this was amazing. I want to go back, but at the same time, I need to let you all know that this is not a bad thing. This is something that, that maybe others would want to do.
1: Yeah, it's, it's also interesting. He never even thinks of some way that, you know, he could still be a loper, but maybe figure out a way to communicate with the humans and let them know what's going on that would entail him not having to be transformed back. And looking at that whole situation where, you know, they're not sure whether they can go back, it it does bring up an interesting question as to the title. Uh if you look at it, I mean, the title of the story is desertion, which I think everybody would agree is a pretty negative term. But from the story's perspective, it's nothing in the story presents the, the process that Fowler and Towser and all the other humans have, uh, that they've gone through. It's never really presented as negative. So when, when Simic uses the word desertion in the title, I, I'm just trying to figure out what it, is it they're actually deserting and is it negative?
0: Right, because it implies by not coming back to the research facility or whatever it is, Dome Three, that they have forsaken their responsibilities. At least we think that once Fowler and Towser have gone out, before that we don't know why they haven't come back. Now that we now that Fowler and Towser go out, then they realize, oh my gosh, this is an amazing experience. I don't want to go back. Now we see it as a choice that makes it seem like a desertion. But yeah, like you said, it feels like the the title seems more negative than the implication in the context of the story of their actions.
1: Yeah, Simak could have titled it, he could have titled it Adaptation. He could have entitled it Evolution. He could have entitled it something much less negative than Desertion. So I'm like, all right, I think we talked a little bit before about the sort of military structure right. of the station, and maybe that's where the desertion comes from, but... Then again, maybe it's it's bigger than that. Is it they're deserting humanity in general? Are they deserting the goals that Fowler? Remember at the beginning of the story, Fowler go he goes on that little r- tangent about uh, you know man's destiny is to take over the planets and take over the universe, doing you know using these pantropic processes. But by not going back, you know they're sort of deserting humanity. They're deserting the goal of humanity to pursue this entirely different existence.
0: Yeah, and it's unclear, as it always is, when we don't know how things would continue after the conclusion of the story that we actually have. You know, Miss Stanley, as a character who obviously has a strong voice and who has the will to speak, you know, when she sees seven people transformed or seven seven beings transformed and then not returning... Would her argument that the whole thing needs to be shut down be the prevailing voice at this point, or would she be overridden by somebody else? Would it be transferred to a different dome? Would they bring in a new commander? We don't know any of these things.
1: Yeah, those are all plausible things that could happen.
0: Exactly. And, and so the desertion seems to focus entirely on the notion of the expedition and not on the actions of the characters. Like, it's a really limited and one-sided kind of interpretation.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's not like, you know, other people get a choice. You know, we, we we as humans don't, without a converter, we don't have the choice of being able to desert the human race. But if we did have a converter, and it was available to everybody, you know, would we do it? Especially, would we do, do it if we knew there was some other type of existence that was you know, better than the one we have, you know, say that someday the lopers come back and do communicate with the humans and say, yeah, man, this is really cool. Everyone should do it. Well, then what happens? Do you have like a mad stampede by people to get to a converter to get out into this new life? Or is it like everything else in society where the the powerful and the elite get access to the converter to turn themselves into lopers and everyone else gets behind? Or do you have those people that, well, I, I can imagine there's a bunch of people that are be like, I can't imagine this. You know, I want to be a human. That There's nothing better than being a human. This is, you know, against the will of God. This is against religion. Or you, know, you get there's zillions of arguments, you know, that people are going to come up with this as to why doing this could be a bad idea.
0: And we don't know about the first four that went out, but we do know about the, about the final three. Alan doesn't really have anything to come back for. Fowler... The only thing that he would have had to come back for would be Towser, but now Towser is with him. Towser has absolutely no reason to come back,
1: and he certainly can't desert humanity. Right. He's a dog,
0: <laughs> right? And and so if they were to come back, you know, the fear is that they express is, is that you know Towser doesn't want to go back to being a dog, and and Fowler doesn't go want to go back to be a human. Which is what's interesting about that is like it it seems to leave off the possibility that they go back or one of them goes back inside, say Fowler, communicates, hey, this is the deal, and by the way, fire me back up, I'm going through the converter, and I'm going to go meet up with Towser again.
1: Yeah, he he thinks they're not going to let him do it? Yeah. Or he just, it just seems like he can't stand the idea of being a human again. It's just so like he says it's 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 so negative to go back into that that limited environment that he can't imagine doing it when there's all this other stuff to do
0: which really then shows us the experience of transformation for him really showcases a, a set of incredible limitations that his human body and his human existence has because it's you know he's talking about forsaking an entire way of life that he has lived for well however old he is however long that is and he's, on a moment of transformation into this new form on a new planet, he's ready to give up that whole human history to stay in this new form. And that's a pretty powerful statement.
1: Oh, absolutely. And the other thing that is not really discussed, um, they, they it is kind of discussed where they have sort of enhanced capabilities and, I guess, enhanced intelligence that they're using all their brains, but this doesn't really seem to impact their personalities. They seem to be the same personality as they were when they went into the converter. At least they they start out that way. But, you know, maybe their enhanced intelligence like, you know, if you're a a pain in the butt and you go through the converter and you come out of the other side, are you still a pain in the butt when you're a loper? Or does your enhanced intelligence make you reevaluate how you deal with people in the universe and you go, ah, maybe I shouldn't have been such a prick after all. And you know, the loper abilities give you a chance to reevaluate your personality traits, but you know, none of that's ever explored.
0: Again, it's a short, short story, and there aren't that many characters, and there isn't that much development. And as we so often do, we find all kinds of interesting things that could continue to be explored after the end of the story.
1: But, you know, the whole idea of the, you know, of the converter itself is a, a great example. And I was going to bring this up, I think, in in one of the last episodes with, uh, I think, Harlan Ellison with the, the computer. The, the, the converter itself is a great idea of what we call, or what I, what I recently learned is called hand wavium. It's that, that plot device that no one really knows how it works or what it does, but it's really key to make sure the plot of the story works. Kind of like in and I have no mouth and I'm a screen, we, we debated you know, how does the computer get this incredible control over the physical environment It can do all these things? It's never explained how it works, but you need to have that in order to make sure the story hangs together. And in this case, it's that whole idea of the converter doing something semi-magical. And yeah, like we don't know what would happen if you try to transform a, a loper back into a human, But but then again, you can think of, hey, there's all these other things the converter could do I was thinking, you know, before the, before the broadcast, it's like, hey, if I can transform a human into a, a another life form, why can't I transform a human into another human, right? Why can't I right. use it to basically make myself immortal, you know, give myself a younger human body or something like that? If I could just, you know, obviously mind transfer and all that stuff has been around in science fiction for a long time. Um, you know, Star Trek's at it. Stargate's at it. It's usually, you know, mind swapping between humans or occasionally it's like a mind swap into a, a computer or something like that. It's usually never really, you know, something where people encounter alien senses. And I guess the only example I could think of is there's, there's some early Star Trek episode where... Uh, I think, like, Kirk and Spock and somebody else, they, they end up in, like, these glowing balls because the, the intelligences need to get out to use their bodies to do something or like that. But, but it's pretty rare where you see a, a mind swap between a human and something that's not a human and then try to figure out some way to describe the sensations that go along with it. I mean, of course, it's kind of difficult to describe something that fundamentally is not describable. I mean, these are senses that people don't have, have never had. Can't really be compared to sight or sound or anything like that,
0: right? Anytime that an author is taking us down this pathway, it's an exploration of imagination to begin with. Yeah,
1: yeah. How are they going to do it? It's like you know, some people. I, I, I look at the analogy. People are like, well, how do you? Ex- explain sight to a blind person right and then there's, there's people who say well it's just them seeing black and they don't get it because it's like no that you know blind people don't see black they don't see anything so you know, what's your frame of reference how do you explain sight in concepts of the, the the senses you have left it's just not possible
0: right we've developed things like um you know there are lenses that we can look through that that approximate what it means to perceive the world from the perspective of a fly for example or from the perspective of a frog yes,
1: seeing infrared yes. or ultraviolet or things like that but it's still seeing it's not some it's like augmented right. seeing but it's not it's still fundamentally seeing just things you can't normally see and
0: it's also it's something that is added on it's not something that's innate and and that's one of the differences that the that Fowler calls attention to here is he used to look out at the at the jovian storm and he would see it as this swirl of, of 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 toxic mist and and you know incredible winds and and rain that was that that was incredibly corrosive and he gets out in it and it feels like a gentle breeze and all the colors are vibrant and everything, like their sensations, their sense that he absorbs through his entire body, not just through what he used to understand as an olfactory organ, you know, in his nose. So it's a completely different experience because it's embodied.
1: Yeah, but again, how do you explain that in in terminology? It's like if I said, you know, Bill, use your blarg yeah. <laughs> to to listen to this thing, and you'd be like, might use my blarg to do the what? <laughs> you know. It's sort of, how do you use terms before those terms exist? Right. It, you know, if I was back in 1944 and I'm like, Google it, Google it, people would be like, what the hell are you talking about? There is no such thing. <laughs> they look at me like I was crazy. So, you know, inventing terminology that things that things for things that don't exist and can't directly be sensed by humans is,
0: is pretty difficult. I think it's one of the things that makes this story truly remarkable, not just for its own time, but for any time. In that he's trying to say to us, we don't understand what we don't understand. And we have no way of comprehending how different the experience would be. Not to see something or smell something or hear something from the perspective of another species, but to actually experience the world as a different form, whatever that might mean. And in this particular case, it's not even just human versus dog, say, for example those are both earthbound beings you know we're talking about something that's native to another planet a completely different kind of ecosystem and there is nothing comparable or compatible from one species or one planetary based species to another so it's a it's pretty remarkable that he's trying to get us to take this journey with him and it makes me wonder you know is this something that that people have picked up on or that they have taken in as they as they've experienced this story
1: yeah and i, I think there's i mean th- there's some other stories that that kind of approach this i think i mentioned before we've had you know stories where like the human minds get swapped into computers right or or some type of machine um you know Anne McCaffrey had like a bunch of stories called the ship where i think they would take you know brains of people and put them in these uh, ships and give them the senses of the ship's sensors and things, and they would try to describe it that way. I mean, that that's still not really you know, this, because it's not a, a, I guess the word would be, a naturally evolved being, and the senses that that go along with that.
0: As we're thinking about this, I'm trying to remember to follow along on a, on a different arc but related about human forms or humans going through some sort of a transformation that makes them more than what they were prior to that transformation.
1: Well, that's just like getting the spider bite for Spider-Man, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> or, yeah. Or like any superhero who develops superpowers. That's their their transformation.
0: You know, yeah, Spider-Man gets bitten by the radioactive spider. The Fantastic Four get hit by cosmic rays.
1: Yeah, is his is his Spidey sense? You know, how do you how does he explain his Spidey sense in context of all the the senses right. that we know? I don't know if they've ever tried, but that's, that's a good question.
0: So this kind of transformation, not augmentation, but you know, something changing the person at a genetic level, so that they are different and so that they are. They have powers that they've never had before. The question is, there are always trade-offs.
1: Well, now we're getting into fly territory, right, with Jeff Goldblum?
0: There you go. Well, yeah, Brundlefly.
1: Yeah, where he initially has, I don't know if they're superpowers, but he gets these, like, augmented powers. He's stronger and faster and more virile, and he can do all these things that he couldn't do before. And he thinks it's because of his, you know, little teleportation machine that he invented, but... We all know it's because of the fly DNA that somehow got inside of him during the process.
0: Right. And he has no concept at first that the fly has entered into the teleportation chamber with him before he goes on his first journey. And so the computer is trying to figure out, okay, how do I make sense of this? I've got to, I've got to make one being out of these two sets of DNA. And, and so he is, he is altered at an atomic level or, well, at a, at a genetic level.
1: So again, much like Fowler and Towser get transformed into something, you know, Jeff Goldblum gets transformed into something, even though Jeff Goldblum wasn't intending to, and and Fowler definitely knew. Towser may not have known, but hey, he went along for the ride anyway.
0: And one of the things that, that happens with Goldblum's character is that he recognizes that he's become something monstrous. He's become something that, that doesn't have human restraint even though it has greater than human capability and so he begins to question whether or not he should continue to exist but if he were not having to interact with human society if he were just to wander off into the landscape whatever landscape that might be would he face any sort of any such dilemma or yeah. would he just go off to I'm be not this sure if uh, fly humans thing.
1: have ethical dilemmas when they're not surrounded by a bunch of other humans
0: yeah this is true that's pretty well, much the that, that's construct. kind of the point yeah
1: yeah and we don't know what happens to Fowler and Towser after they leave right i mean like all you know we a lot of these science fiction stories we're like hey what what could happen afterward And, of course, the story pitches everything like, oh, they they ride off into the sunset like a couple of cowboys on Jupiter, right? But, you know, maybe some alien bird on Jupiter does like to pick out the eyeballs of the lopers. Or maybe they get to the loper society and it's based on slavery or something. You know, we don't know how this ends. (laughs) I don't think that's where, you know, we would go with this story. But, you know, the fact is it could become the beginning of something else.
0: There's a hint in there right toward the end where fowler wonders if they as they go off to explore the planet if they will stumble upon another civilization and it says um oh yeah towser says we've got a lot to do and a lot to see we've got a lot to learn we'll find things and so now we're in fowler's perspective he says yes they could find things civilizations perhaps civilizations that would make the civilization of man seem puny by comparison beauty And more important, an understanding of that beauty and a comradeship that no one had ever known before, that no man, no dog had ever known before. So there's all this sense of possibility as they as they head off into, like you said, into the Jovian sunset, the Jovian maelstrom. But there is an implication that he feels like now that he knows that the lopers are more than what he anticipated them to be that maybe they have some sort of a society that they have constructed that we would have had no concept of and no way of, of really understanding. And he's eager to go find out just how little we know. And that, that notion of exploration, I think, is a pretty cool way to end it. It is indeed.
1: Now, you know, given that this, as we referred to before, is a, a 1944 story, I guess we could turn our attention a little bit to, you know, what we do like to pick on occasionally, which is some of the the anachronistic or or dated things in the story that make you go, eh, the things you have to gloss over as a modern day reader. The most
0: odd for me has to be that Miss Stanley doesn't have a name. Everybody else has a first name and a last name, except for the biologists who are just the biologists. But Miss Stanley is Miss Stanley. She's a Multi, she's a world-hopping technician who is the master of pantropic transformation, and yet she is Miss Stanley.
1: It's like your third-grade teacher,
0: <laughs> and he even refers to her as. They don't
1: have names in the third grade. It's just like Miss So and So.
0: She's prim and and she has this sort of teacher-like or nun-like quality to her that makes him just vaguely uncomfortable. So in Miss Stanley aside, one of the other details that amused me is that Towser is this dog sitting under a desk in a dome on a planet far from the earth. And yet on at least a couple different occasions, he has to bite at fleas. So where do the fleas come from? Like, did he bring yeah. them on the spaceship with them, and they jumped off, and they colonized the spaceship, and so there's this colony of now earthbound like, like cats and
1: rats boarding <laughs> the sailing ships to go to other continents.
0: You'd think that the fleas would die out, or
1: yeah, if like, you think of like the the modern space program that we have, all these you know things in place to prevent any life from escaping Earth to contaminate other planets, but right. eh, maybe not so much in it's, 1944. It's just
0: a it's a goofy kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and then like the only other thing he talks about is is Fowler's comparing you know his new senses to how he used to talk, and he refers it refers to it as Boy Scouts wig wagging <laughs> out their messages. I have really no idea what that means, but it it just sounds dated to me.
0: Yeah, it's somehow a judgment of of humans. It's probably offensive to somebody. <laughs> Aside from a few of those of those little details, it's a uh, it's a remarkably timeless story. You know, that we still haven't been to Jupiter. We still haven't um, you know, colonized or, or attempted to colonize Jupiter.
1: We still haven't managed to magically transform humans into alien bodies? And probably never will.
0: Well, we haven't we haven't really embarked on that conversation as a species. You know, when we've talked about establishing a colony on the moon, or now there's talk of establishing a colony on Mars. You know, so far we've had people, not necessarily a colony, but people hanging out in the International Space Station, for example. So we talk about occupying these spaces, but like Wes Jackson says, one of his big projects is the restoration of native prairie in the Midwest, like in Kansas and Nebraska and so on. And he used to do this this series of talks around the country, and he would always open it up with saying that we had never been to the moon, but that he would explain. No, we've never been to the moon. We took a little piece of the Earth's atmosphere with us up to the moon. We walked around in that for a little while, and then we came back home again.
1: In our meat container.
0: <laughs> in our meat container, exactly. So yeah, you, the point taken that this is an interesting, uh, an, an interesting story in that it talks about, as we said, you know, transforming the human being to to be compatible with an environment.
1: By that argument, you could say that we've never explored the bottom of the ocean either, or right. like any other place that a that a unprotected human can't survive. Right. So he's basically saying if you can't directly encounter the environment with your senses, then you haven't been there.
0: Right, and that's taking it perhaps a little too far. You know, you, you get where he's going with that, and at the same time, like it's like like he said, you know, we we absolutely have experienced. Well, or we have explored, perhaps we haven't experienced in the fullest sense, some of these different alien environments that are right here on Earth. But at the same time, this is the way of things, and we haven't necessarily tried to transform all of those spaces, even on our own planet, that are relatively inhospitable, let alone on other planets.
1: Yeah, well, of course, you can argue that since the brain constructs our reality anyway based on sensory input, that... You know, we never really experience anything.
0: <laughs> this is and our true. brain isn't
1: great for us.
0: I think it poses interesting challenges to us as humans. Under what conditions do we want to explore or under what conditions might we engage successfully with exploration at the moment, the capability that we have somewhat developed at least is to take our meat can wherever we can send it, based on the propulsion systems that we have, and we can go visit. Yeah, we don't know if we can walk around anywhere else. We suspect that we can't. At least no place that we know of yet that we could go walk around. You know, there's always been some hope that we might eventually be able to do something like walk around on Mars or one of the moons of Jupiter, for example, because there there's some perception that tells us that there might be places like Earth out there, but we don't know of any yet.
1: Yeah, it's also a little naive to think that five people just kind of voluntarily signed up for this transformation. And, you know, you referred earlier to, hey, you know, can the converter actually convert them back? And you know, you'd think that they wouldn't go if there wasn't some option of coming back if it, you know, doesn't work out. I don't know of anybody who's going to sign up particularly for that one-way trip.
0: It's at least implied in the in the conversation between Towser and Fowler at the end where if they go back they'll be turned back into a dog and a human. So the process must be reversible.
1: Yeah, especially if they've done this on other planets.
0: And yet at the same time in this particular case like yeah, you're talking about a life form that has a completely different uh, a completely different elemental base. So we're talking about some pretty stupendous technology to engage in, in this kind of a process and to, and to result in this sort of a transformation.
1: It's all hand wavium, which, you know, is, is really just mo- nothing more than, you know, unobtainium or, you know, all these other plot elements we see. I mean, I think we had rotomagnetics in one of them, right? You know, the, the, even some of the stuff in the Sentinel, it's like, there's just so many things in early science fiction and, I mean, even to this day, you know, so how does Iron Man's suit work? Now eh, we don't really know, but we just assume it does.
0: Well, he's a genius. That's all we need to know. Exactly. I think it's time to introduce a new feature to the podcast here, because just like the the humans that transform through Pantropy, we're going to evolve a little bit as as hosts here of the podcast. we're going to introduce a scale that we can use to talk about these stories.
1: Because we like new things. That's or right. Or confusing the listeners, whichever one it is. So Dan, introduce the scale to us. Well, it's pretty simple because we're pretty simple people. It's a three-point scale, which basically reads as,
0: hmm, whoa, or what the fuck just happened? It pretty much comes down to, as you're reading, as you are working your way through a story, you're getting to the end, how do you respond to it? Does it make you think? Does it make you think, hey, that was pretty awesome and cool? Or does it make you think, what the heck are they thinking?
1: Or more like what kind of state is your brain in after you finish up the last few sentences?
0: So thinking about desertion in this way, what do we think about desertion? Well, what do you think about desertion?
1: Well, well I think about desertion much more as a hmm stories or anything else because it does have a lot of things that you can look at and sort of extrapolate into what could be happening. I know we discussed earlier in the show what what could have happened to the characters later on, you know, if if the story had gone past the point where it ended. But the concepts it introduces are much more of a hmm, that makes me think about certain things than it is any type of real surprise or real twist.
0: Yeah, and I I'd, I'd say that i would argue that there's a there's a whoa that was pretty cool kind of element to it because of the technology that's involved but as you pointed out during the conversation about it it's also just so much hand wavium so although the concept is interesting it's not necessarily even the defining moment it's everything that you're talking about and what does it make us think about
1: exactly so i think we would give desertion a solid hmm with a little bit of whoa
0: i agree with that
1: So looking ahead, we're going to do a little bit more on the whole human augmentation thing. And it's going to be by William Gibson covering Johnny Mnemonic, another great story, if not a great movie.
0: See you next time, everybody.